the one and only Cliff Richard and the Hi, David Ghosty Wills here, and welcome to Episode 2 of the We Say Yeah podcast, an unofficial monthly Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast that reviews and discusses every single EP and LP in chronological order. I hope you enjoyed our first episode featuring guest Vic Rust, as we talked about Cliff's first four singles and the Oh Boy album. The reaction to that show was largely positive, and we'll read some of your comments in just a few moments. I have to tell you, though, and you folks over at the Cliff Richard Christian Fans Facebook page will appreciate this, I am so hopelessly untechnical when it comes to creating podcasts and distributing podcasts that clearly a divine hand was involved to uh, get that last show to you. I was about ready to uh, scrap the whole idea because I I couldn't get the logo I designed for the show to conform to Apple Podcasts specifications. It was maddening. And yeah, by the way, we're now on Apple Podcasts as well as Podbean. Also, in my enthusiasm and overall overwhelmed frame of mind, I neglected to mention last month that there is a Facebook page for this show called, as I'm sure you've guessed, We Say Yeah. I think there's about 75 people or so that are on that page that have liked it. So go over there and check it out if you're on Facebook. And if you're not on Facebook and you still want to correspond with the show, you can email us. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. Now, speaking of comments, over on the Podbean website, M-I-M-C-G-T-H-19 writes, Fantastic. Looking forward to following your journey through Cliff's entire catalog. Thanks so much for that. Ricky W 69 says, Great show. Really enjoyed it and gives us a thumbs up, which we appreciate. Doreen says, Listened and enjoyed listening to all the Cliff songs. Great broadcast. I'm in Sydney, Australia. We'll be listening again. Thank you so much, Doreen. Kim writes, can't wait for the next podcast. Well, Kim, the wait's over, because here it is. Terry writes, thoroughly enjoyed listening to this interview. It will be interesting to hear the rest. Well, I hope today's program is interesting, too. Ian writes, uh, Ian Cook, just listened to your first episode. Very well done. Thank you so much, Ian. Now, Darren Evans, who is a friend of mine on Facebook, posted this, which I thought was really interesting. I wanted to give you his perspective on this, because in a way, it might be like a lot of yours. Finally got a chance to listen. Great first episode. So as I'm kind of taking a dive into Cliff with this podcast, I'll share my thoughts since I'm hearing all of these songs for the first time. Move It is exciting right out of the gate. I understand why it was such a smash. Schoolboy Crush isn't terrible, it's just ordinary pop. I agree with you that Steady With You should have been the A-side of the third single. It's not a great song, but it's decent enough and it would have hit with the fans. It's very much in the style of the day. The other songs to me kind of run together. There's a frenetic energy to them, but nothing that really makes them stand out. I have heard Living Doll before, so I know a little of what's coming next. Looking forward to the next episode. Thank you so much, Darren. Thanks to everybody who listened and commented, and anybody who's listening now. I appreciate it. 
So this month, okay, music historian and social media's authority on all things Cliff in the Shadows, Mark Cunningham joins us today to talk about the first single from the Shadows. Now, again, they were known as the Drifters at the time, and you're going to hear us alternate between calling them the Shadows and the Drifters during this discussion. We'll talk about the first single and Cliff Richards' debut LP, which was simply called Cliff. Now, I wanted him as a guest on the program because I noticed he had been doing these five-minute Cliff Album reviews on his YouTube page, which is called Mr. Dreammaker Mark Cunningham, and you can see a whole bunch of them there. And it was also on YouTube that I learned that Mark has been interviewed on television, where he was referred to as Ireland's biggest Cliff Richard fan. So naturally, I had to ask... Is this true? I mean, it was on television, right? It must be true. I'm not sure. Whether I certainly have one of the biggest collections, I'd say, of uh, Cliff memorabilia, but I don't know whether I'd be the biggest fan. Like, it's being debated. as like um, a few people have challenged me on it. As well. <laughs> but um, I don't, I don't, who's the biggest fan? It doesn't really matter once we all like Cliff, like, you know. Well, that's true. How did you get into Cliff Richard and the Shadows in the first place? When I was younger i grew up listening to my dad's record collection and in this collection he'd have elvis ricky nelson Everly brothers up to the beatles um the beach boys i think he kind of went off music after the late 60s or 70s he was mostly into 50s and 60s and i think what attracted me about cliff was cliff was the one that was still around when i was a kid in the early 80s he was still in the charts he was still on top of the pops um, every Thursday, he'd sit down and see Cliff on top of the pops. He's doing all the Wogan shows, the the TV shows around the time. Um, so I knew who Cliff was. So I think that's what attracted me that he was still relevant in the eighties, and I think that's how I got into Cliff first. Yeah, similar story with me. I talked about it last month on the show. I had heard his cover of Daddy's Home. I think Jermaine Jackson did a version of it. Yes. Yep, he had a hit with it too. It's a great, great track. But the B-side, I think, is even better. The B-side that Cliff did is a cover of Johnny Kidd's Shaking All Over. Oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. It's a great version. It's, it comes from Cliff actually recorded Daddy's Home as part of a live rock and roll show. That was used as a single. And in the same show, he sang Shaking All Over, which is the B-side, which I think is even better. That's just my opinion. Well, you know, it's a good segue because we're going to be talking about Cliff's debut LP, which is something of a live album. But before we get to that, we have another debut to talk about. The very first single by his backing group, The Shadows. Released in February of 1959, we've got Feelin' Fine on the A-side and Don't Be a Fool with Love on the B-side. Let's start with the A-side, Feelin' Fine. Feeling fine, I stole a kiss Feeling fine, a pretty miss Gave it back and so I'm feeling fine Asking you about the date Yeah, originally um, the Shadows, which were the Drifters at the time, they were pretty much a vocal group in the same way as the Beatles were in the early right. days. They'd done one or two instrumentals maybe in their set and like the Beatles became them. Um, the Beatles later on from the same kind of style. They were kind of seriously influenced by the Everly Brothers. Oh, you can definitely hear that. I think everybody wanted to be the Everly Brothers back then. Yeah. But Feeling Fine was written by the same guy who wrote Move It, which is very surprising because I don't think Feeling Fine is that great a song. 
and I understand why it wasn't a big hit, but it did. You have to start somewhere, and they started with right. that single. I don't. Uh, it was yeah, but it was written by Ian Samuel who wrote "Move It" as well. And you know, I was just going to say, I I must be somewhat perverse. I like feeling fine, just like the up-tempo movie version of Living Doll and Serious Charge. Yeah. I like that, and Cliff and the Shadows don't like that record. And feeling fine, Hank and Bruce have said, is the worst record they ever made. I like it. You know, it might just be me. It's not a masterpiece, but it's an all right. Yeah, single. it's grown on me over the years, but I don't, yeah, it's it's one I wouldn't listen to that often. And even the the B side there, uh, which is kind of more harmony based, um, don't be a fool. I don't think it's that great a single, but um, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, you know what what sticks out to me about feeling fine, and I'm I'm not saying that this what I'm about to say is true, but when it cuts to the instrumental break, yeah, and we get they sort of scream before it, and then we get this clap, you know, yeah, yeah, right, and I and I think to myself that sounds like early Mersey beat. There must be about 10 Beatles songs that all do the same thing. I mean, that was a staple of the Mersey Beat sound. I'd love to know the original record that started that. I guess it would have had to have been an, a, an American record, right? Yeah, everything came from America at, this, in, at the right. late 50s. So the, the British bands, they were only trying to find their own style. But it was basically a copy of what came from America at the time. They were all influenced by the same people, even the Beatles, who were the same age as Cliff and the Shadows, right. even though they didn't make it till another five years later. They were, they were all influenced by the Everly Brothers, by Elvis, by all the harmony groups that came before, all the doo-wop. Um, so you can you can hear that in um, Feeling Fine and Don't Be a Fool and also the early Beatles stuff as well. Yeah, and that flip, Don't Be a Fool with Love, if you snuck that into some radio show that played group harmony stuff and said that was a Danny and the Juniors B-side, I bet you everybody listening would believe it because that's what it sounds like. Don't, don't be a fool was actually written by a guy called Peter Chester who was a good friend of Bruce Welch the rhythm guitarist of the Shadows and um, Peter Chester and Bruce actually went on to write some great songs for Cliff including the number one Please Don't Tease they wrote that song together and you would think that the guy who would be the most reluctant for the Drifters later to become the Shadows to have their own career outside of backing Cliff would be Cliff himself but that's the exact opposite of what happened Cliff was their biggest champion he actually got them yeah. a studio session with the with his producer Nori Parmer. Nori Parmer was Cliff's producer at the time, and Cliff kept on nagging them and nagging them and nagging them. You you have to hear my group; they're absolutely fantastic. They stand on their own, and um, there's great footage of them actually singing, feeling fine. I don't know whether you've seen the the Shadows documentary that was came out yes. a couple of months ago. Yeah, Shadows at Six. Clip of Fire and Fire on Oh Boy, which is kind of historic because I'd never seen that until that. So I'm hoping the full clip gets released on YouTube at some stage. But yeah, it was get back. It was Cliff that got Nori Paramore to actually take a chance on the Drifters at the time. And I'll tell you something else, not so much with the B-side, but with the A-side, Feeling Fine. Even though I know that Cliff is not singing on that record, the vocal blend of Hank and Bruce 
almost creates a third sound, and it sounds like that's Cliff in there singing with them. I know it's not, but it's a similar sound. They're well, not related. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. So let's move on to the debut album, which was recorded over two nights, February 9th and 10th, Studio 2, EMI London, later to become famous as Abbey Road, and recorded in front of an invited audience. And it's a live album in all but name. I mean, it's called Cliff, but you could have called it Cliff in the Shadows in Concert 1959. It's actually a fact that Cliff had a sore throat at the time, but they had the studio booked and they, they had the audience booked and everything. was. And so they went ahead. So Cliff isn't in 100% on that album. But um, I still think he sounds absolutely fantastic, considering he's only 18 years old. I think Hank Marvin is only 17. Right. Uh, Hank and yeah. Bruce are only 17. Um, Jay Harris was a bit older. I think he was 19 years old. But Tony Mean, the drummer, was only 16 years old at the time. So it's it's, it's crazy when you start thinking how young they actually were. On right. It. And the, the sound they got was absolutely fantastic. And as you say, on a live album, like unheard of. Yeah, and it's an album that doesn't get the credit it deserves. As far as I'm concerned, this is a landmark album in British rock and roll history. I mean, this album kicks off the British rock and roll scene proper. Yeah, even though it was based on America, you could hear them finding a sound that wasn't necessarily American. And I think actually on Cliff's next album, you actually hear that sound coming through more than this album mainly because I think about a month or so after the Cliff album was released, Hank got his Fender Stratocaster, which totally changed everything. He got the echo box and the, the, the right. found his own sound. So the whole sound changed after this album. I don't know what guitar, I was trying to Google it earlier. I don't know what guitar he's actually playing on this album. I think it was a Japanese import type of guitar. So I don't think... Um, upset Shadows fans again, but I don't think Hank sounds <laughs> like the Hank Marvin we know today. I don't think he sounds as good as the, on, the, on the first album as he does on the second. But the, again, that's just my opinion. Well, like you said, Cliff had a sore throat, but that raspy quality helps with putting across the rawness of this early rock and roll material. I mean, there's so much energy in this record. Yeah, the youth of it, I think, comes across as well, which um, I think Bruce Welch, when, when they're doing the Reunited tour uh, back in 2009, they said they feel exactly the same as they did back in 1958-59, but what they can't get back is that youth sound. Right. Not just from right. Cliff, but the, from the band. They all sounded so young at the time, so they'll never be able to capture that again, but it's captured perfectly on this album. So why don't we go track by track through this album? I have to tell you, I haven't listened to it in a long time, but I just put it on yesterday, and I, I was enjoying the heck out of it. Yeah, I wasn't doing the car. I was actually on a night shift now. I'm after coming off a night shift in work. Oh. Uh, so I listened to the whole album driving home. So I'm only just listening to it about an hour ago. <laughs> so it starts off with apron strings. It's crazy, I know. But it's one of those things. I won't look at that, 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 that. Apron strings. Well, you hold my hand and I burn like a fire. Interestingly, there would be a studio version of this song recorded a little while later. Again, yep. 
because it's a totally different guitar sound. Um, Hank uses the Fender on this single version. He doesn't on this live version. And to me, I think Jeff Harris, is the bass player, is actually driving this whole song. Yeah. I think all the Shadows admitted at the time he was the more experienced one. He was the older one. He, I think he'd been in bands since 56, successful bands around England. Um, he, was, he went through the skiffle and then he went into a kind of bluesy, type thing he wasn't into rock and roll at all he was more of a jazz bass player but um by the time movie hit the charts and cliff asked him to be his uh bass player he, he thought that it's a no-brainer like this guy is going to be huge i want to be a bit of want to be in all that so he kind of gave up on the jazz and became a rock and roller but um getting back to the first song apron strings i think uh Jet actually is lead on this. This he he actually drives the whole track. I think it's yeah. He absolutely sounds fantastic. I know I I seen an interview with Jet Harris. Um, I don't know what from from what year. It could have been actually a podcast I was listening to, and um, he said that he used to on the slide turn up the bass on the recordings. So that's why you hear so much <laughs> bass on all them shadows recordings. And, yeah, the, he's the master. Like he, he's, yeah, Hank got the first Fender in England, Fender Stratocaster. But Jeff Harris played the first bass guitar in England as well, which is not that documented. You know, I remember reading an interview with Cliff where he talked about he he was a little trepidatious about having Jet Harris in the band because Jet Harris looked so cool that Cliff thought, oh no, this guy could outcool me. <laughs> Which he did, yeah. yeah. They did another live album a couple of years later. Uh, I don't. It wasn't released at the time, but it was released about ten years ago. It was called Live in Kingston. In That's a wonderful record, yeah. Yeah, and you can hear the the girls screaming as much for Jet as they are for Cliff. right. So after Apron Strings, which has an Elvis feel to it, uh, the next track is a song that Elvis performed live at the International Hotel in Las Vegas in 1969, My Babe. By uh, Little Walter, wasn't it? it was written right, by, written by uh, Willie Dixon. Willie yeah. Dixon, the blues track. Well, my babe, she don't stand no cheating, my babe. Oh, yeah, she don't stand no cheating, my babe. What I feel about My Babe, it's down as a cover of a Little Walter song, but to me it's a cover of Ricky Nelson. Cliff is a big Ricky Nelson fan as much as Elvis at the time. And I feel like My Babe and, and the next song, Down the Line, are two songs that Ricky Nelson had on his second album, I think it was just called Ricky Nelson. And um, the two tracks are very, very similar, the whole style. And I know that Hank was a big James Morton fan who played yep. lead guitar. So it's straight from Ricky Nelson. I consider them covers of Ricky Nelson songs. So we move right on to Down the Line. Shiver me long, shiver me cool and pass it long, I got Which is a Roy Orbison song, which a lot of people don't know, but it was Roy Orbison. Yeah, it's Roy. Yeah, it's, it's been covered by loads of people. But yeah, yeah, Cliff does a cracking version of it uh, down the line. But I, to me, it's a copy of the Ricky Nelson. Yeah, you know, I'll bring this up now because this theory's been 
floating around for a while that one of the reasons that Cliff did not make a big impact in the United States when he first came over in the very early 60s, it wouldn't be until the mid-70s that he had success here in the States with uh, a number of big singles. But the theory is that we had a guy like Ricky Nelson already in America who was a rock star, who was doing movies. He had the, you know, the guitarist that everybody loved in James Burton. And the idea is that maybe they were too similar. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? That's been suggested that they already had an Elvis. They already had Ricky Nelson. They already had Fabian, uh, Frankie Avalon, Bobby V, countless. Why would they want Cliff? But... It's an actual fact that when Cliff went over and toured in 1960, Frankie Avalon was, um, I think, top of the bill. And Cliff was just there. There was a whole list of American artists, but Cliff was down the very bottom of the bill. I think he was even credited as Cliff Richards. Yes, that's right. I don't even even think the Drifters were even mentioned or the Shadows were even mentioned. But um, he went down a storm uh, at every gig he went, he stole the show and nobody could follow him, including Frankie Avalon. So you, you have to put it down to the record company. And uh, yes. like, I know we want to stay to the, to this album, but I, I recently heard Cliff actually commenting on why he didn't make it in America. And he was talking about an album he released in 1980 called I'm No Hero which is an absolutely fantastic album. And the record company told him a year before that album that if he could bring the singles, they would give him an album. And from that album, he had three top 30 American hits and they still didn't release an album. And he's the only one, I think it should be in the Guinness Book of Records or something. He's the only one that has ever had three singles come from an album that didn't make it that the album wasn't even released so it's crazy it has to be put down to the record company as well like not supporting them and the funny thing is at first he was on capital here in america then capital dropped him and he went to abc paramount in canada he was still on capital and they promoted him and he had hits in canada but in the u.s when cliff came over on that tour that frankie avalon tour nobody from abc paramount even bothered to come to meet him which is just unheard of Anyway, so we'll move on. This is a good yeah, side discussion. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on. I th- oh, I got a feeling. It is a Ricky Nelson cover. Of yep, this. another one. Yeah, here we That's go. The obvious Ricky Nelson. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. It's a cover of a Ricky Nelson song, which is great again. As I say, I know that Cliff has said he's a big Ricky Nelson fan at the time. Well, I got a little feeling that I love was meant to be. Oh, yeah. Well, the big white world of happiness just went for you and me. So why don't you I think it's three favorite singers at the time were Elvis, Ricky Nelson, and Ray Charles. So Mm. that's a nice little blend. (laughs) It is, it is. And then, interestingly, we have the Drifters doing Jet Black, and they had not released that as a single yet. That was their second single, I believe, their first instrumental, um, Black and Drifting. Drifting was written by Hank Marvin, and uh, Jet Black was written by uh, Jet Harris. I remember Jet saying as well, um, it's the one they, they always used to get wrong because they just it was so simple.
it's a nice little tune and it's a nice little break in the album from just pure rock and rock, rock, rock. It's almost like a comedy record in a way. Yeah, and that was released as a single that didn't make it for them. It's probably a good job but didn't make it because we know what happened. Uh, with yes, Patches, so. it all worked out. So up next, we've got Cliff paying tribute to his hero, Elvis Presley, on a version of Baby I Don't Care. You don't like crazy music. You don't like rock and you just want to go to a movie show Sit the whole hand you so square I think Baby I Don't Care is when you're kind of hearing the struggling with his voice going back to him he had a sore throat at the time um, I think you can hear that uh, particularly on Baby I Don't Care and the next song Donna as well Since she's been gone I'm left here all alone Left to wander and wander all alone For I love my girl, Donna, where can you be? I know for you folks who are listening, it might seem like we're blowing through these songs quickly, but these are covers of really well-known rock and roll songs. Um, you know, also have to remember that this was the I did do, do, what you said the the. Um, the actual time the album was re- uh, recorded was in February. February, right. So that was a week, literally a yes. week after the plane crash that took Buddy Wow. Home, Big Bopper and Richie Valens, who had the original with Donna. So I think maybe they were they could have been just throw that in to pay tribute. Yeah, 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 you're right. So then we get a live version of Move It. Right, yeah, I'm not too fond of this live version because <laughs> Move It is my absolute favorite record of all time. I, I love the original, and like I know he's recorded a few versions since. Um, he even bubbled on his recent rock and roll album, which was absolutely fantastic. But the original single to me is the greatest record of all yeah. time. Um, and as I say, I don't think Hank had mastered his talent at that time as a guitarist. Uh, well, he hadn't found his sound, and I don't think he sounds that great on Move. I, I know some fans might disagree with me, but at that time, I don't think he sounded great. It's like he plays a fantastic now, don't get me wrong. Right, right. But um, this record, there was another album there released. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an album called Let Me Tell You Baby's Call Rock and Roll, which was yes. live stuff. And um, I'm sorry, but Hank doesn't sound very good on any of the tracks. Even Living Dolly doesn't even sound good on. But um, but it was, you have to remember, they were so young. Hank was trying to find the sound. And I think by late 59, he had found that sound. But this was early 59. So I'm not really that fond of this version of Move It, to be honest. Boy, you're going to have the Hank Marvin fans storming the gates. I'd never say anything <laughs> bad about Hank, but just, it, it just, I don't think he'd perfected the uh, he definitely hasn't perfected move at that stage, as far as although I, w- I will say, you mentioned that that let me tell you, baby, it's called rock and roll set, and the version of Ready Teddy on that is better than the one here. Although this is good too, but I think the one on the sa- I guess it's a Saturday yeah. Club performance. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah, but um, I th- I think Ready Teddy is probably my favorite track on the. It's really album. good. Originally by Little Richard, of course. Mm-hmm. Who even though. 
Real Richard was a wild man. If you actually listen to Ready Teddy, his version, it's actually softer than Cliff's. Cliff's actually puts a lot more energy in yeah. it. Yeah, Cliff sounds like he's about to jump off the stage. Next up, we get another cover of an Elvis song, this time Too Much, and it's nice, you know, it's nice to have. Yeah, he chose all the songs himself for this album, and there's no way he wasn't, he wasn't going to do a couple of Elvis songs. Right, of course. Hero. He, he still says to this day he wouldn't even be where he was without Elvis, so it's not surprising he, he stuck in a couple of Elvis tracks. Too much when I want some love and you're gone. Baby, don't you know you're treating your daddy wrong? It's not the best Elvis cover ever, but it's it's nice right. to stare as well. Yeah, for historic purposes. Same with the next cut, really, because this is the single that almost was. Don't bug me, baby. This should have been the follow-up to to move a chair, but they wanted another um original hit. This was a cover of it. I I can't think who done the yeah, it's a it's yeah, it's a rockabilly cover. I think I, it's oh. Milton Allen. Like. So you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They done the original, but they they again they wanted to just record originals. And the producer at the time, Nori Parrymore, was throwing all these covers at them, and they were saying, "No, um, we have a songwriter here. Uh, we should use him. We should we should right. go in with original material." But uh, I know that Cliff hated his second single there. Uh, High class baby. Really? Another one I like. Yeah. I, I can't win with these people. He said right through the years that he hated it, but he actually featured it on the Reunited Tour. I did, maybe he started to like it. I'm not sure. In recent years, I'm not sure. But I actually yeah. love it. Then up next, we've got Driftin'. We mentioned this song earlier. This would be the flip side of Jet Black. Here it is, released on this live album prior to it even being put out as a studio recording on a single. So interesting stuff here. <laughs> I love the single of that. That's probably the best of the the, the four yeah. tracks that we mentioned: uh, "Feel Fine" and "Jet Black" and "Don't Be a Fool." Drifting. If I have to pick one out of them four, I'd pick "Drifting." It's really cool, and I think uh, Tony Main sounds great on the drums in that track in particular. Yeah. And then you mentioned that fateful plane crash, which had only happened a week before. We get the Buddy Holly tribute next in uh, "That'll Be the Day." Yeah, it's a great version as well. Yeah. I absolutely love it, yeah. 
And then we get the Drifters doing Bebopalula. Bebopalula, she's my baby. Bebopalula, I don't mean baby. Bebopalula, she's my baby. Bebopalula, I don't mean baby. Totally Everly Brothers style. It doesn't sound a bit like the James Vincent. It's totally copied from right. the Everly Brothers, which, as I say, the Everly Brothers are a big influence on John and Paul and definitely on Hank and Bruce as well. And you have to wonder, they sound great here on vocals. We heard them earlier with Feeling Fine and Don't Be a Fool About Love. Later on, they're going to have a single called Saturday Dance where they're singing. I don't know why it didn't work for them. You know, why the Shadows became an instrumental combo primarily. I, I mean, more power to them. It's a, it was a great decision. But I like these early vocal singles, but for some reason, it just never clicked. But they did go on to record some absolutely cracker um, vocal recordings later on. A song from the Finders Keatabers soundtrack is one of my favorites that they, they sang on. It's a song called My Way. Absolutely yep. sounds Brilliant track. Um, and what was, the, what was the other? Don't Make My Baby Blue. Absolutely yep. fantastic, which was a cover as well, which I, I, I don't know who just sang the original, but it was a cover as well. But yeah, they, they could sing. Absolutely. So next to last track, this song is something of a mystery to me because this is an, an obscure Elvis Presley song. Not even a lot of Elvis fans in the U.S. know about this song. It's Danny, originally written for the King Creole soundtrack, song written by uh, Fred Wise and Ben Weissman. And it wasn't on the album. It was cut from the film. And eventually, two years later, Conway Twitty would have a hit with it when it was retitled Lonely Boy Blue. But in between that time, between 58 and 60, so here in 59, this was a well-known song in the U.K., we have Cliff Richard doing it here, and other British acts did it. How did this become, this obscure cut, become so well-known in Great Britain? Yeah, particularly because uh, Marty Wilde had a hit with it as well. I think Marty's is actually better than Cliff's. Yeah. Don't hear me saying that on many. But, uh, <laughs> I think um, I like the whole guitar. That he had that uh, big Jim Sullivan. Have you ever heard of Bill? Oh, yeah, yeah so, of course, yeah. Yeah, fantastic guitarist as well. Uh, he's playing on that licorice locking on bass who went on to the shadows for a little uh, while yeah yeah the, the marty was version is great but uh cliffs is nice on this album as well and it's the night before the for the finale with a whole lot of shaking my love has been empty my heart has been torn it must have been raining the night i was born Well, here we are, the last song on the album. Whole lot of shaking going on. Look, I'm not saying that this is better than Jerry Lee Lewis's version. It's it's better than Winoni Harris, but what a spirited, wild, maybe even somewhat reckless way <laughs> to uh, wrap up an album that's recorded in a studio because this thing sounds like a powder keg about to go off. I mean, it's the very essence of raw, primitive rock and roll.
it's a great closer as well, and he he does a little bit um improv in it. Um, I know that Jerry Lee Lewis does that whole talking bit in the middle, and Cliff's attempts it a little bit. Yes, yeah, and yeah. It, it sounds really, really <laughs> cool. He actually says his name in the song, doesn't he? I think. Shake, baby. Yeah. Shake one time for Cliff Richard, just one time. Ain't they again? They got a hold of the shake and hold on. Just about now we should be going down, but I ain't got a stand mark. Ah. Yeah, baby. So as we start to wrap up here, we've mentioned it several times. It's a very important album in the history of British rock and roll. You know, it would have been very easy to stick Cliff with a bunch of studio musicians from another generation and have them make lifeless covers of American hit records, but that's not what happened. Nori Paramore had the vision to capture on record the same sound you might have heard at the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. It's young kids swept up in this frenzy of rock and roll, and everything about this album is genuine. And this group, Cliff Richard and the Drifters, are confident enough in their own original material that they'll risk putting those songs side by side with their American counterparts. So is it an overstatement to say it's a landmark album? Not at all. But beyond that, you listened to it just a little while ago. I listened to it the other day, and it's still enjoyable. We're still enjoying it all these years later. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I don't even think just for a Cliff fan, I think for anybody who wants to learn about the the beginnings of British rock and roll, it didn't begin in 1963 with the Beatles. It was light before that, five years before with, with Cliff, with Marty Wilde, with Billy Fury, uh, Johnny Kidd, just like countless people, like before the Beatles as well. Like, um, I think a lot of people, the history books, particularly music history books, tend to start the rock and roll era from they go from Elvis straight to the Beatles. But there was there was in between yeah. that as well, you know, especially yeah. in, um, and in Britain they were finding their own style that could compete. And of course, the Beatles did that in a big way later on. But could they have done it without Cliff first? You know, five years before, right. exactly. Like, it opened doors in in England, in all over Europe for the Beatles before the Beatles cracked America. Cliff opened the doors for them, so I, I don't know whether they would. The Beatles fans would probably disagree. No, listen, <clears throat> nobody's a bigger Beatle fan than I am, and I know you're a Be- Beatle fan as well. But you know, you have to you, you just you just look at the story which is okay you know uh, london palladium royal variety yeah ed sullivan you know and cliff and the shadows are doing all that stuff yeah i think it's been documented that brian epstein actually took the beatles to uh cliff and the shadows concert just before they made it and showed them what a band should actually sound like and performed even down to how they bow on stage yeah right in unison all at the same time and from this from the leather gear to the suits. That was all from Cliff and the Shadows. And by the way, those suits made by the Shadows tailor, Dougie Millings. So (laughs) so there you go. Yeah. So, Mark, this has been great having the... Oh, there's one last thing I want to mention about this record. Even though it is live... It does sound to me like at the sometimes at the beginnings of tracks and at the end of tracks, they've thrown in some screams. Uh, yeah. I, I guess the idea was that it would blend 
but the bands are separated. They sort of fade out a little bit. So I, I did notice. I remember that's why my dad hated his album. He never listened to his album because he just thought the screams are totally fake. Because um, there, there is um, a couple of versions of this album. And it was actually released in France uh, under the title Dance with Cliff or Dance with Cliff Richard. And just totally different screams on that album. And the, the screams are in different places and everything. So it's, I don't know how much the screams are actually real. But they, they still sound fantastic on the, the released album anyway. So yeah. I think I think during the songs those are actual reactions but I think it's like towards yeah. towards the towards the end of the songs it's almost like to cover up where maybe yeah. the band didn't start altogether yeah. at the same time or something like that. Well, yeah. yeah. Particularly on the sound of movement you can't even hear the intro. You You're right. Hear how can't hear how bad Hank is playing. <laughs> well, listen to this. This is this <laughs> poor Hank Hank Marvin if he's listening to this is tossing this into a river in Sydney or something. Yeah. Uh so Mark, this has been great. Where could people go to find out what you're I know you've got single-handedly you run about like 30 facebook uh yeah, pages and you, yeah. Fans is probably the, the the best one i think we have over twenty four thousand cliff fans on that one and there's um but i have the as you say like i think about 10 cliff pages but my favorite one is cliff richard the rock and roll years because that's 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 why i, I think i only have about four thousand on that so there should be more on that um, yeah a lot of um Cliff fans, I think, um, should actually look into his early stuff because it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I did, like I do polls all the time asking fans like, "What's their favorite Cliff songs?" And they'll all be always be Missy Nights and Ocean Deep and all the big ballads. But um, they 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 tend to forget that Cliff was the original British rock and roller. Like he was yeah. like, some absolutely fantastic rock and roll back in the late fifties and early sixties. I really hope you enjoyed that discussion with Mark Cunningham, and next month we'll have something of a swap cast going on, tentatively, that is, with TCB Cast, an unofficial Elvis fan podcast. Boy, that that description kind of sounds similar to the one we use, right? Gee, I, I, I wonder where I got that from. Also, special thanks to musician John Burdick of the band The Sweet Clementines for coming up with our new Shadows-esque theme music. And make sure to follow the Sweet Clementines on Facebook. In closing, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Eunice Dubs, who passed away just as we were getting ready to upload the show. We're going where the sun shines brightly. We're going where the sea is blue. We've seen it in the movies. Now let's see if it's true. It was true. It is true. Rest in peace, Eunice Dubs. We say yeah. We say yeah. We say yeah.